Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference. Have you gotten your invitation to CanMed 23 yet? If not, then head over to canmedevents.com now and request your invitation. Yes, CanMed 23 is an invitation-only event this year due to the limited capacity at our new location, the Marriott Marco Island Beach Resort. That's not to say it'll be a small event. CanMed 23 will feature three full days of cannabis science content, including more than 30 presenters and instructors representing our key focus areas, science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. And new for CanMed 23, we will also explore psilocybin and psychedelic mushrooms. Check out all the latest information about CanMed 23 at canmedevents.com, and I hope to see you there. This episode, we talked to Dr. Allison Justice. Allison is founder and CEO of The Hemp Mine, a 30-acre hemp farm in South Carolina that supplies premium hemp genetics bred in-house across the U.S. The Hemp Mine produces a wide array of consumer products ranging from smokable flour to topicals to tinctures of different concentrations for both humans and animals. Allison also co-founded the Cannabis Research Coalition, a professional group dedicated to addressing the cultivation and post-harvest issues that challenge today's cannabis industry. Allison recently co-authored an article in Cannabis Science and Technology titled Reading the Leaves, Adventures in the Leaf-Level Physiology of Cannabis, which takes a deeper look into how cannabis plants respond to light and CO2. During our conversation, we discuss the difference in cannabis photosynthesis rates during vegetative and flowering stages, the possibility that during flowering leaves in the cannabis flower take over photosynthesis from the fan leaves, why cannabis growers may want to reduce light intensity and duration six weeks into flower, and conversely, how maximizing light during flower can increase yield but reduce quality, and possible varietal differences in photosynthesis rates. Before we get to my conversation with Allison, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, Cannabis Science and Technology. Cannabis Science and Technology is your educational resource for all things on the legal cannabis industry. It covers the latest developments and trends in analytical testing, quality control and assurance, extraction, cultivation, and processing and manufacturing. The brand furnishes all this information into a monthly print magazine and also on their website that includes webcasts, ebooks, podcasts, and more. You can subscribe for free on CannabisScienceTech.com. Okay, and without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Allison Justice. Good afternoon, Allison. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, of course. So I came across your article that you co-authored 
in cannabis science and technology titled Reading the Leaves, Adventures in the Leaf Level Physiology of Cannabis. And I also saw the conversation that took place on the LinkedIn post that you did to share that article. And I thought it'd be a great topic to discuss on the podcast, not only because the research is valuable to growers, but also because it's a good example of something that we've talked about a lot on the podcast and at CanMed, which is this whole idea of we're seeing researchers use the science to explain some things that legacy growers have learned through experience. But before we get too deep into that, please explain what it is you did with this project and some of the key findings that came out of it. Yeah, so <clears throat> this was a project done um, in cohesion with Lycor. And so Lycor is a, a bioscience company that makes all sorts of really cool, unique tools to you know, take a plant and understand what's going on on the leaf level or even sometimes on the cellular level. Um, they have tools that do plants. They have tools that um, even go underwater and uh, and measure photosynthesis for underwater plants. And and so, you know, this was a, a project I was extremely excited about um, when when Jason and Rod called me and, you know, they wanted to to get some measurements on cannabis. Um, I was completely excited, um, <laughs> you know, using one of these tools, you know, you could totally say that's a grad student's dream come true um, because it really takes, you know, the theoretical and let you see on a, a science level with math and equations and, you know, being able to understand what goes in, what comes out and make um, conclusions from there uh, is just really exciting. You know, these tools are very intricate. You know, they can be difficult to use, um, not difficult to use, just uh, tricky. Um, and you really have to understand what it is you're looking for. So, you know, it's, it's not a tool for every grower. It's, it's not a tool for every large corporation. You know, this uh, we tried to make it very clear in the article. It wasn't a sales pitch by any means mm -hmm. um, because these tools are mostly made for researchers, uh, universities, and, and people that, that take it a, a, a step further, you know, people that really enjoy plant physiology and, and understanding uh, photosynthesis. But the thing is, you know, the conclusion here is taking all of the information we find as researchers and applying it to, um, you know, everyday learnings of what happens in a grow room. Um, and, I, you know, this is a, a very, very, you know, high level for this type of research because, you know, it was done with data collected, you know, only for two days. Um, hmm. Tons more needs to be done for this and in different ways. And we can talk about some of those different methods that I would like to do on a, a repeat trial. But I think this just kind of brings up some topics that we can take and 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 further talk, further do research, but then also start to compare to you know what have what have the legacy growner growers done for so long, and why you know everything from um, you know increasing CO two levels you know that's not that's not done just for fun. We understand that that goes to speeding up photosynthesis and which ultimately increases yields, which ultimately increases dollars. 
Um, so it all plays together. It's just not necessarily a tool um, a grower would use. It's something that we need to take these findings and, and apply it and, you know, bring science into the community. Excellent. So in looking again, looking at your LinkedIn post, there were like three bullet points that were sort of the, the key points that came out of your research. And if you don't have that in front of you, I have it written down so I can, <laughs> I can read it off. Um, but the first one being um, that cannabis has one of the highest rates of photosynthesis. And you said it's up there with corn. So um, was that a surprising finding? Was that something that you kind of expected? And, you know, and what does that mean practically for a grower? So corn, corn and I believe sunflower are two of the um, two plants that have the highest rates of photosynthesis. Um, and, you know, everybody driving down the road, you can see how fast the corn grows, how aggressively, if it's watered. Um, you know, these plants are just monsters and very good at um, assimilation and, and understanding or, or, or the capability of a, you know, turning CO2 into plant material, basically a, a, the biomass. Um, and, you know, cannabis is, is a tricky plant. Um, you know, I've always known that as a, as a vegetative plant, it can handle great extremes. Um, you know, our greenhouse, there's been times it's the fans have failed and it gets, you know, 150 in the greenhouse and the vegetative plants are just fine as long as they have water um you know I've, I've seen cold temperatures under freezing and the plants are okay but when you talk about a flowering plant they're a lot more finicky um and and what this data shows is is kind of why and puts a puts data to me just saying they're finicky um because they can't they can't handle the the extremes as much as the vegetative plants do. So I think we all know that that cannabis in general is a is a beast. You know, it grows very fast, very aggressively. Um, so this just shows, yeah, it's up there with corn. Yeah, and that's interesting. So is the is the hypothesis that the plant is using so much energy or so much resources into creating flour that it becomes more susceptible to stresses? Yeah, I, I believe so. Um, you know, looking at the data that we were able to put, and I imagine you'll put the, the link in uh, where people can read it themselves. But so, you know, if you were to look at figure two and three, both of these describe, you know, two different processes of why the flowering plants are are less suited to deal with problems than vegetative plants. Um, so as far as looking at photosynthesis, uh, carbon allocation. So, you know, taking, taking the CO2 in the air and turning it into biomass again, um, and then looking at different light intensities, even though that light is there, the flowering plant basically throws it away. Um, and so you'll, you'll see in figure two, non-photochemical quenching. And all that means is that when the plant takes it in or when, the, when it comes to the plant, instead of absorbing it to, to go through photosynthesis, it basically throws it away 
in a form of, of heat. And so, um, you know, looking at these graphs, the flowering plant has a much higher level of, of non-photochemical quenching than the vegetative plants. So um, plant, basically all it says is vegetative plants can take up just about as much light as you could give them, whereas mm. the flowering plants throw it away um, in layman terms. And so, you know, this really makes you think about, well, for an indoor setting where you can control what's going on, because this was done on, on, a, on a field crop, you know, it makes you think, well, is there, is there reason at certain points during the flowering cycle to provide less light because it's not actually using it? Um, and, you know, I, I, I know a lot of legacy growers at the last couple of weeks of flower, they, they turn down the lights, turn down the temperatures. Um, and this could absolutely be one aspect of that. Um, but then as was brought up on LinkedIn, well, maybe this is just considering that the leaves, because keep in mind, uh, this measurement is done on a leaf. You know, it's one basically centimeter spot on a leaf in a, a point in time. Mm. Um, well, maybe those leaves are not photosynthesizing as much during those later times in flower, but the, the leaves within the, uh, the flower material is actually taking over from there. Um, and, you know, you kind of, you think about the life cycles and what you notice and especially in the field where nutrients, you know, we, we, we amend the soil, we add, you know, fluable liquid nutrients through, uh, the irrigation system, but still it, it's hard to really provide everything the plant needs in a field setting. Um, and so, so especially in, in a field setting where you do not have adequate nutrients or, or quite as much for the most part, towards later in flower, you'll notice a lot of leaf yellowing. And so it's, the, it's those older leaves that are, are yellowing, you know, eventually fall off. Well, you know, there, there's a reason for that. And that's because it's the leaves then are becoming a, um, a source for that floral material. So you know, basically just uh, moving those nutrients out of the old leaves and, and moving that energy towards the flower. Um, and so, you know, even indoors, I've, I've seen this happen. Um, and, you know, the, most likely that's an effect of, of nutrient. But what it really tells me is that it's a shift then from photosynthesizing, potentially, potentially, from photosynthesizing in the leaf to that floral material really taking over. Um, you know, another way to kind of look at this and kind of conclude that, um, again, a lot more work needs to be done to have this as the exact conclusion. But um, if you think about the folks who really strip the leaves off the plants. Yeah, that's what I was going to, I was going to yeah. bring that up. I wrote, I wrote down lollipopping because. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So those who lollipop or, you know, the, the old two node, one node and flip or <laughs> where they really strip the plants, you know, coming into the industry, 
um, a while back, I saw that and I was like, oh my God, you know, right. you're, you're pulling off its solar panels to an extreme. But, you know, I have seen in, incredible yields when, when plants are stripped, you know, just as good, if, if not better than some that are not stripped. Um, and so this definitely could contribute to the leaves not doing as much work than as, as the flower. And cannabis is a, is an interesting plant because, you know, the, the flower is green. <laughs> um, right. When you think of other plants, there's okay. not a lot of, of photosynthesis going on. I mean, there's, there's no chloroplast there. So um, I think that all kind of jobs together to lend towards you know, one, you, you certainly could, could cut the light down, but two, you know, is it really that flower taking over? And this kind of leads to, you know, the desire I have for another experiment, um, hopefully not too long from now, is basically taking, um, doing these sorts of measurement in a, a chamber. Um, so where everything that goes in is measured, everything that goes out is measured, what's changed inside is measured, and you can um, really, really understand what's going on with the flower, not just this one one leaf on one plant. Interesting. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things that stood out too when you were taking us through figure two and talking about how when you get into flowering that the leaves not absorbing that light anymore, it's sort of giving off heat. And I wonder, in an indoor setting, is that something that's more commonly seen? Like when you have plants that are in flowering, is the room warmer? Hmm. That, that's an interesting thought. Um, hmm. So if you're maximizing the light that it can take up, is it actually enough to heat the room? That's a good question. You know, I would I wouldn't think so. Um, right. Okay. That that would is such you know micro units that these plants are putting out. I sure. would guess not, but that's definitely something I'm going to double check. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sounds good. And so yeah, in you know one of the conclusions that could be made from this, and you mentioned that some of the legacy growers may already be doing it, is that. It's, it sounds like, and based on your, your paper and the post too, that after six weeks of flowering, you might be able to either back off the intensity of the light or just even shorten the duration of the light or both. Mm -hmm. Is that the idea? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, again, because the plant is throwing away um, these photons that, that you're paying for in yeah. an indoor setting, you know, it would, it would make a lot of sense to do that. Um, you know, even if the floral material is taking over for a lot of that photosynthesis that's happening, happening, um, if you think about, I guess, square footage of the leaves versus square footage of the flowers, um, if you were to take the leaves off, there's less, less square footage, if that makes sense, um, of the flower material. So they would have to really be making up for the leaves. So I, I would, my theory would be that you could back off, you know, it's still photosynthesizing, but I, I think you could certainly back off those last weeks. Um, but, but other things I've noticed, you know, that kind of give a thumbs up to backing off on the lights is, is really the quality. Um, 
I've seen people, gosh, I've seen people in the last two weeks actually go to 24 hours light mm-hmm. and just you know pump them full, pump them full of, of photons. Um, and in certain settings, I have seen that increase yield, but the flowers look terrible. You know, they start throwing out little fingers. And as far as being a, a nice quality for smokable flower, you know, it, it pretty much ruins it. But if you were just growing these for extract, which uh, I imagine not many people are <laughs> indoors, um, at least those those top nice flowers, um, you know, it, it would make it unsellable. Um, you know, the other thing is the, the really high light intensity. <sighs> I, I have seen that really, and I've, one thing we should look at is looking at the trichome heads, and is that highlight intensity basically speeding up uh, the, the process of going from the clear to the milky to amber? Is it just speeding that up, or is the high light intensity causing that color change? Um, cause like I said, I, I've seen people be applying 1200 micromoles light and, you know, the plants almost look burned, especially, yeah. you know, the, the higher, the higher colas that are closest to the light. So, you know, there, there certainly could be, there certainly could be merit to, to cutting the lights off the last couple of weeks. Oh, and, and to add to that, the, the last thought for, um, that procedure would really be, you know, are you, whether you're cutting lights off or, or providing low temperatures, you know, are you, are you sending this plant earlier to, um, to ripeness? You know, is it doing something in the flower that we certainly haven't measured yet, but that contributes to a, to a cure or to, uh, an aspect, you know, de- decreasing chlorophyll, something that makes the plant taste, you know, taste better. Um, the, you know, I, I can't say I doubt that. Definitely could be. Right. No, and do you think that this whole, the do you think the idea of the plant needing less light later in the later stages of its life, it's, I mean, that sort of mimics natural conditions, right? It's an annual plant and they're finishing in the fall like like it is now where the days are shorter and there's less light to, to use. Right, yeah. I mean, in nature, that's that's what they get, you know, between the, the daylight and temperatures, you know, that all lends to the plant basically saying, let's hurry up, uh, winter's coming, we need to flower and produce seed where our species keeps going. So, yeah, I mean, it, it certainly makes sense to me. Um, and, and this data suggests it. So I, I think with, with some other universities, other experiments jumping in, we can, we can definitely say, at least in the varieties we test, <laughs> because there's right. certainly varietal differences. Um, I have yeah. seen that with, with many aspects, whether we're talking nutrients or light you know, CO2, all other things. Yeah. And that was one of the things mentioned in the paper. I think it was with the, uh, your co-author there, Jason was, was mentioning that in other crops that 
this sort of this sort of study and this sort of data has been generated not just on the species level, but on the varietal or in our case, the strain or the cultivar level, because there are going to be differences throughout. So, um, yeah, that's that's a great point that, you know, this was just done on one variety over two days. So there's a lot more that that we can learn. Absolutely. Yeah. The, these tools are used for breeding projects, you know, whether Monsanto or whoever out there is breeding corn, um, those scientists definitely use these tools um, because, you know, when you're breeding, you can certainly measure yield um, versus the inputs you give it. Um, but you can't necessarily, you can't necessarily tell how, how strong photosynthesis is without these tools. I mean, you can have an estimate again to, based off of yield, um, but this this certainly gives uh, a deeper insight and, and uh, a good tool for breeding. Yeah, and to that point about sort of on the varietal level, I, I know that in the paper that you also identified a, a phosphate limitation in the plants that you were looking at. Now, is that something that's sort of specific to the strains that you were looking at, or is that something that can be more applied broadly? Yeah, so that was an aspect of my field. <laughs> you know, like I said, we, we try to supplement it as best we can. Um, and, and each year it gets better and better. You know, making acres and acres just right absolutely takes time. Um, but no, that that's certainly an aspect of my plants being uh, phosphorus deficient. Um, and so that showed up. <laughs> it certainly showed up. It, it shows up on my uh, my elemental leaf tests. It shows up in the, the soil tests. And this absolutely concluded that. Got it. So, okay. Um, and so I guess kind of in general, was there anything that stood out to you or really surprised you um, at the, with the data that you collected with this project? Yeah, the, the, the phosphorus aspect, that was, that was something else, you know, uh, when, when the LICOR team told me this, I was like, well, that's probably right, but, you know, I, I need to jump back into the literature, <laughs> you know, it's been a long time since I've had to sit down and remember all of the pathways um, for photosynthesis and, you know, why, you know, put together the pieces of, you know, um, phosphate limitation and where that plugs in, in the photosynthesis cycle. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, once I dug back into it, it, it absolutely makes sense. Makes so sense. I, I can give the, uh, the, the layman's description of, of why, why phosphorus in general is needed to produce good flowers or, or good flowers because the more photosynthesis, the greater yields. Um, but also just in, in general with, with a good growing plant. Um, so, you know, the, the takeaway there is you think about go back to biology and, and high school or whatnot, you know, CO2 goes in, um, the plant deals with that through an enzyme um, called rubisco. From there, it's converted to sugar. 
um, to do this sugar conversion process, there has to be a phosphate attached. Well, if the phosphate is not there, mm. the plant is continuing to bring in CO2, but there's a backup. So there's a traffic jam. And so, you know, your plant's not getting those sugars that they want to grow and to thrive. Um, and so instead, instead of photosynthesis, it turns to photorespiration where um, it's not taking up CO2 anymore. It's taking up O2. And so O2 plugs in there and basically it, it, it wastes. Um, so the, the energy, the CO2 is converted to something else um, instead of going through the cycle. It, want, it should go through, which makes those sugars. So it creates oxygen instead. Is that what you're saying? Well, it takes up oxygen instead oh. of CO2. Okay. Yeah. So it Got plugs it. in there instead of the CO2. Interesting. No, and that's, I mean, again, going back to layman's biology, we're always taught, you know, the plant, it takes sunlight and converts it into energy. But you forget that there's other nutrients that are, that need to be involved to make that process happen too. And that's, that's coming from your soil or if you're growing from hydro, the nutrients that you're adding in there. Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. I mean, me as a non-scientist, I've, <laughs> I've only recently come to that conclusion after yes. attempting to grow cannabis myself with, with so-so results. So, so we started talking about this where, you know, we, we were hoping to, through this research, give some, some practical information to growers that they, that they can use. So, I guess as we're winding down, what are some of those things that they can apply based on on what you've learned here? Oh, I think I think one takeaway is understanding everything you do to these plants are inputs, and if it's not balanced, one input would be a waste. All right, so let me give an example of that. If you have a grow room and everything is perfect except fertilizer say you you have a you have a organic uh, fertilizer you have an organic soil and maybe you haven't supplemented it properly so you're you're limiting something well you'll say your temperatures are right your humidity's right and you're giving it 1500 parts per million co2 well because of those nutrients being off you're basically just wasting your CO2 because going back to the phosphorus um, and, the, and there's other processes in the plant that, you know, it won't be the same cycle of, of photosynthesis and, process, and, and phosphorus processes, but there's other processes. If you don't have those individual elements, um, you know, our 16 essential nutrients, then all of that CO2 you're adding is just wasted. It might help a little, um, but levels, you know, well over ambient, like 1500, 1800, is just a wasteful input. Um, so understanding that you need all of these pieces to be optimal to really increase your yields and, and put out a good plant. Yeah, and that comes back to the, to the light too, right? Like you said, that's it's very expensive running these lights, especially, of course, indoors what we're talking about but mm -hmm. it, you know and if that's being wasted and you would actually be better off dialing those back then that's i mean that's a win-win exactly exactly 
All right, Allison. So again, winding down before I let you go, I did want to give you a chance to plug any um, any other publications you have out there that you want people to to be aware of or check out or any, you know, social media or websites that people can check out to learn more about you and the work that you're doing. Please plug away. Absolutely. So, you know, of course, on, on my LinkedIn, you can see a lot of the articles I've put out. Um you can follow me on Instagram. Um, it's dr.justice underscore grows. Um, I usually at least give some sort of reference to, to new work we put out. And then, of course, we'd love to have you join the CRC, the Cannabis um, Research Coalition. This is a, a farmer industry funded group. Um, to support the hemp mine and Clemson University put out um, really important grower relevant research. So nothing, we, we may include neat tools like this in our research, but our goal is to then take that research and, and put it to something that can be immediately used by the growers. So, um, you know, everything from looking at different types of oxen for rooting to um, understanding, well, you know, with a certain variety, what happens if instead of being just 12-12, you move to um, 13 hours of light? You know, that's one extra hour of all of those photons, you know, you know, how can that benefit you? Um, so research like that, that's, that's extremely relevant. Um, we have a, a website, just Google Cannabis Research Coalition, and it'll pop right up. Excellent. Yeah, love the CRC and hoping to see a good representation from the group uh, at CanMed. Absolutely. Um, we'll be there. Yeah, it'll be fantastic. I know you're helping out on the advisory board and we're very happy to have you. And um, again, happy to have you on the podcast as well. So thanks again, Allison. And um, if I don't talk to you before, then we'll see you down at Marco Island. All right. See you there. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Allison Justice. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And thanks again to this episode sponsor, Cannabis Science and Technology. Our next episode drops November 9th. That's two weeks from today. In the meantime, please do check out the new and improved CanMedEvents.com. The team really did an exceptional job updating the website with all the information about our CanMed 23 event. And of course, you can still find videos of all the previous CanMed presentations and panels in the CanMed archive. You can also find all the previous episodes of the podcast as well. And while you're there, make sure you sign up for email alerts to get all the notifications around this innovative industry-leading event. I also invite you to engage with us on all our social media platforms. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for CanMed Events. And lastly, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Doing so really helps us improve our rankings and reach more listeners. All right, that's it from us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to join us on the next CanMed Coffee Talk.